All right. Three, two, one. Oh, my goodness. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today is Tuesday, January 14th. And uh, oh, my goodness. We had a gigantic weekend of sports. We had the NFL Divisional Playoffs. We had the College Football National Championship. We had a number of coaches hired throughout the NFL. We have a lot to talk about today. I am so excited. Uh, first, I got to acknowledge, Joe, this episode is later than I wanted. Um, I had a cool opportunity yesterday on Monday. Um, I got invited to film with Guy Fieri and uh, dr- Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And I'll be honest, it was super inconvenient for me because I wanted to record the show, my own show. Um, but I think personally, the experience and the the things I learned by watching Guy Fieri and how he operates doing his show, I think was really valuable. Um, it was kind of those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. You have it, you take it, you go do it. And so I did that. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, you might see me on an episode of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives <laughs> at some point down the road. We did film, it was pretty cool. Um, but I want to start today with, you know, I had to just acknowledge that's why the episode's later than I wanted. Uh, valuable lesson for me. I think it was good to see how it operates. It was a fun experience for me, even though it was a bit inconvenient. I want to start today with this, though. There are four teams left in the NFL playoffs. We have, you know, championship weekend is coming up. The winners next weekend will play in the Super Bowl. So we have the AFC Championship on Sunday, which is the Titans at the Chiefs. We also have the NFC Championship game, which is the Packers at the 49ers. And in my opinion, the two best remaining teams in the NFL playoffs are the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, personally, uh, the Super Bowl that I want is the 49ers and, in fact, the Kansas City Chiefs. No offense to the Titans, no offense to the Packers. Uh, I, look, I love the Titans. They're a cool story. They were the sixth seed. They've overcome a lot of challenges. They were nine and seven. They really impressed a lot of people. Uh, I also love the Packers story. I love Aaron Rodgers, their quarterback. I love their head coach, their first year head coach, Matt LaFleur. Uh, but man, here's the thing I want to see. I really want to see Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs offense against that 49ers defense, that incredibly stout, really great defensive line for the San Francisco 49ers. I want to see them challenged by Patrick Mahomes. And then, frankly, let's be honest, the Chiefs' defense has gotten significantly better throughout the course of this season, and I would love to see them compete against this really interesting running game the 49ers have, their good quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. That's a game I want to see. I want to see the Chiefs against the 49ers. I know that's, uh, like, I feel bad for the other fan bases out there. They're like, I want my team. I get it. Um, And I I think the Titans are going to make it interesting. And I'm really excited to see how the heck the Chiefs try to slow down the Titans' offense on Sunday. I mean, the Titans' running back, Derrick Henry, is a beast. Their entire offense goes through him. He had 195 yards on Sunday. I would do everything in my power to try and stop Derrick Henry if I was the Kansas City Chiefs. I put a ton of defenders around the line of scrimmage. I would try to slow down the Titans' running game. I'd play man coverage. I would force the Titans to throw the ball and then hope and pray that Ryan Tannehill cannot consistently beat man coverage. And the problem is, this is why I'm so excited for this upcoming weekend, is that the Titans actually could, in fact, beat man coverage. They could. They have A.J. Brown, this young rookie receiver who's phenomenal, and Ryan Tannehill has made key play after key play after key play in these most recent playoff games. And so, you know, from the Chiefs' perspective, if I'm the Chiefs, right, if I'm the Kansas City Chiefs' defense looking at our matchup, can Ryan Tannehill really beat man coverage throughout the entire game for four quarters? Because if I'm the Chiefs, I look at it this way. 
We have a quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. He won the NFL MVP last year. He's phenomenal. They had seven touchdown drives in a row last week against the Houston Texans. If I am the Kansas City Chiefs defense, I think, look, we're going to challenge Ryan Tannehill to beat us, and not just beat us, but can Ryan Tannehill, the Titans quarterback, who's done okay this year, been really good, but can he really go blow for blow, touchdown for touchdown in a shootout? against Patrick Mahomes, that's why I believe the Kansas City Chiefs are going to be in the Super Bowl and beat the Titans this upcoming week. Now, the Packers and the 49ers, if you remember, if you look back in history earlier in the year, on November 24th, the Green Bay Packers lost to the 49ers 37-8. to The 49ers destroyed the Green Bay Packers. And people are like, the Packers fans are like, we want redemption, we want to... Good luck with redemption. There's a reason why you guys got your butts kicked. The key in that game was that the, pa- the Green Bay Packers had no answer to stop the 49ers' pass rush. The 49ers' defensive line won one-on-one battles throughout the entire game, and Aaron Rodgers, the Packers' quarterback, had no chance. He was running for his life, was constantly under pressure, he had no time to throw, and couldn't complete even the most basic passes. Now, there is hope, though. I want to give kind of a rebuttal. I believe personally that the 49ers are going to knock the stuffing out of the Green Bay Packers, but there is a chance. Here's why there's an opportunity for the Packers to maybe beat the 49ers this upcoming weekend. Two weeks after the Packers played the 49ers, on December 8th, the Saints followed up with a game against the San Francisco 49ers. And the Saints put up 46 points on the 49ers' defense. The Saints' offensive line is better than the Green Bay Packers' offensive line. They're better in one-on-one matchups. I do not think the Packers can duplicate exactly what the Saints did because, again, their offensive line is not as skilled as the Saints was. However, maybe, maybe the Packers can steal some of the schematic looks that the Saints ran against the 49ers' defense and neutralize a little bit some of that 49ers' pass rush and run some more effective plays and score more points than they did last time. It's possible that the Packers can look to the past, learn from what other teams did against the 49ers, and find some success. The Saints got the ball out really quickly. They scored a lot of points on the 49ers' defense. And then you look at the Falcons' defense, actually, against the 49ers' offense. The Falcons' defense did a number of things in, later in the year against the 49ers. The Falcons actually beat the 49ers later in the year. Can the Packers look at tape and look at film and learn from it and then eventually compete with the 49ers next weekend? That's what I'm excited to see. But you can't forget, you know, schematics aside, sometimes it comes down to who has better dudes, who's more physically talented. And if it comes down to that, the 49ers are going to knock the stuffing out of the Green Bay Packers. It might not matter what plays the Packers run. They might just be physically outmatched by the 49ers defensive line. Look, I believe we're going to get the 49ers and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. That's what I want to see. It's a storyline I want to watch. It's a matchup I'm excited for. But I will say the Titans have a chance. And I I don't know the Packers really. I think the Packers are physically outmatched. But they could shake things up. You never know. Either way, I hope next weekend, championship weekend, is fun, chaotic, crazy wild. I want close games. I don't really care who wins. I think that the most interesting matchup in the Super Bowl will be the 49ers and the Chiefs. But look, I I believe that's what we're going to get. But if another team does surprise us and wins, I'm not going to be super upset. But again, I think the best possible Super Bowl... As a fan of football who wants to see a close, intense battle, the best possible outcome for the Super Bowl would be to have the 49ers playing against 
the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, that incredible quarterback, against the 49ers defense. All right, um, it's Tuesday today. So yesterday, last night, we had this incredible, incredible football game. Uh, my dad and I sat down. I had pizza. I was eating with a fork and a knife because I'm weird. Y'all make fun of me. I don't really care. Uh, my dad and I watched this game together. It was so much fun. LSU beat Clemson in the college football national championship. LSU won 42-25. to And, uh, man, what a great story. I had so much fun watching this game. Think about it this way. The Louisiana State football team won a national championship in the Superdome in New Orleans, Louisiana. They had a home game in their home state where they won the national championship. That's unbelievable. That's such a cool story. And then I got to say, you know, I have a lot to say about this game. I'm excited to get into it. But we have to start by talking about the journey and the road that LSU took to get to that national championship to win a title. Um, You know, in in 2019, the AP preseason poll, these were the top four teams before the year started. This is the preseason top four teams in the AP poll 2019. The top four teams were number one, Clemson, number two, Alabama, number three, Georgia, and number four, Oklahoma. LSU beat all four of those teams on their way to a national championship. That's unbelievable. I don't think that's ever happened before. On November 9th, they beat Alabama. And then the final three games of the year, they beat Georgia, Oklahoma, and then Clemson. That's unstinking believable. I've never seen a team do that before in my life. And you got to look deeper than that. On the way to their championship run and championship victory, they beat seven top 10 teams. That's never been done before. Um, either you know, All year, people said that Ohio State was the best college football team they'd ever seen. And the reality is that probably based on the resume, like we can argue talent, whatever, based on the resume alone, LSU on paper based on the resume is the best college football team we have ever seen win a national championship. They went 15-0. They beat seven top 10 teams on their way to do that, including the four teams that were number one, two, three, and four in the 2019 AP preseason poll. That's unbelievable. And here's an even cooler part of the story. Joe Burrow, the LSU quarterback, broke the single-season record for touchdown passes in a season. Joe Burrow had 66-0 touchdown passes, 6-0-60. The old record was from Hawaii quarterback Colt Brennan. Colt Brennan had 58 touchdown passes in the old uh, the WAC conference. That's playing against teams like New Mexico State and San Diego State. So Colt Brennan broke that record and had that record, 58 touchdown passes in a single year against bad competition. Well, Joe Burrow broke the record against the college football elite. He broke the record not only in the SEC against the top competition there, but he had four touchdowns against Texas, seven touchdowns against Oklahoma, six touchdowns against Clemson. Time and time again, against the best that college football had to offer, Joe Burrow lit it up. He shredded everybody he played. He didn't just break the record against bad teams. He broke the college football single-season passing touchdowns record against the best college football has to offer. It's unbelievable. To me, I'm like, that's crazy. I'm not a stats guy. I'm not a numbers guy. I don't really care about all this stuff. But man, this is the one opportunity where I'm like, this is unbelievable. If there's anybody still out there who somehow, I think there are still people that do. I don't understand how you exist, but there are some people out there that somehow do not believe in Joe Burrow. 
I don't know what you're watching. I don't know what, if you're under a rock. I don't understand. You, either you don't understand football. I think you just, most people just don't understand football. If you somehow still think that all of Joe Burrow's success is luck or because of his coaching, you're just wrong. Coaches don't throw the ball. Coaches don't make decisions. And I, I got to tell you, man, I have never seen a quarterback more prepared for any moment, any situation, any matchup he receives than Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow processes the game of football so quickly. He always understands exactly where to go with the ball. I've never seen a quarterback make really like perfect decisions as frequently as he does. If you go back and watch that national championship game against Clemson, they bring tough look after tough look, and he just identifies the right matchup every single time. It's so impressive to me. His accuracy, his decision-making, his ability also to extend plays, keep plays alive, to run around a little bit, make something out of nothing. The dude is unreal. Joe Burrow is, <laughs> man, he's one of the best quarterback prospects in a long, long time. He's phenomenal. If I could design a quarterback, I mean, look, I, I wish Joe Burrow had a little bit stronger of an arm. Fine. But his preparation, who he is off the field, and the way it impacts the way he plays on the field, Joe Burrow is phenomenal. Now, here is where coaching played a gigantic part for LSU down the stretch. Uh, there was a moment in the second quarter where Clemson led the game 17-7. to And I look over to my dad and I go, uh, Dad, <laughs> the way that Clemson is getting pressure on Joe Burrow right now is a gigantic problem. And if at halftime, LSU is going to have to make an adjustment because rushers are coming free. Joe Burrow has guys coming free that are about to hit him, and it's causing LSU's offense to sputter a little bit. And I said, Dad... At halftime, LSU has to make an adjustment. However, LSU didn't wait till halftime. They made an adjustment on the fly, on the sideline, in the middle of the game, in the middle of the second quarter. And after that adjustment, dealing with their pass protection, solving their problem, LSU scored three touchdowns in a row. In fact, they were leading. They were down 17-7 to when I said that to my dad. By halftime, later at the end of the second quarter, they were leading at halftime 28-17. to They went on a tear, and they made adjustments on the fly. That is so cool, and that's a testament to coaching. You want to Don't discredit Joe Burrow, but you got to credit the coaching there. Coaching's adjustment to handle the pressure that Clemson was bringing, that's phenomenal. There was even a moment where, like right before halftime, Clemson appeared to— Look, the guy might have been hurt. Clemson appeared to fake an injury— the guy might have been injured. If he was, I apologize. But it seemed like the guy was laying on the ground trying to slow down LSU's offense, laying on the ground, pretending to writhe in pain, waiting while trying to disrupt the rhythm of LSU's drive. And it's so funny because the minute the like, play resumed, the game started again, and LSU didn't skip a beat. The very next play, Joe Burrow threw a touchdown pass. And I was like, man, this guy's not deterred. Even Clemson, whether it was intentional or not, having an injury – slowing down the pace of their game, halting their drive to a complete dead stop. Joe Burrow wasn't phased and still found a way to throw a touchdown pass as soon as play resumed. It's awesome, man. I, I don't know, man. Clemson made it a ball game. In the third quarter, there was a point where, you know, Clemson scored a touchdown, had a two-point conversion. At one point, the game was 28-25. to But Clemson wouldn't score again after that. And, uh, you know, LSU just kept going and going and going. Big chunk after big chunk. Great throw after great throw. Joe Burrow was 31 for 49 passing. He had 463 yards, uh, five touchdown passes, zero interceptions, no interceptions. He also ran 14 times for 58 yards and another touchdown. 
And it was so cool, the way that Joe Burrow ran the ball, there were some key moments late in the game, you know, before halftime or in certain moments where there was a really gutsy run. I, think, I believe it was before halftime where LSU had no timeouts. It was third and long, and Joe Burrow tucked and ran for a first down, got out of bounds, got the clock stopped, gave them an opportunity. That set up the gut touchdown we, I just talked about. And Joe Burrow ran so, I think the word is like tactfully, where so smart. He's so aware of everything going on. There was a play on the goal line where, you know, LSU had, was in an empty set, meaning they had five wide receivers, nobody in the backfield next to Joe Burrow. And the one guy that could account for Joe Burrow blitzed to the right. Joe Burrow saw that, knew that everybody was going to be back in coverage. He took off to the left, up the middle, and scored a touchdown pass because there was nobody to account for him. He is so, when I say he's prepared, what I mean is it's not just preparation, it's his awareness of exactly everything going on around him and exactly where everybody's going to be. It's unbelievable to me. Now, here's the harsh part. Joe Burrow was beating man coverage all day for LSU, playing phenomenal at the quarterback position. Now, the harsh reality about why Clemson lost is that their quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, was unable to beat man coverage. By NFL standards, Clemson had people open. There were receivers open for Clemson by like six yards, by like six inches. So typically in college, you see receivers that are open by about five yards, and you can throw the ball once they're open. This was, you know, LSU was playing really tight man coverage against Clemson, forcing them to have. If they're going to complete passes, they're going to do it into really tight windows where guys are only open by a step. Sadly, Trevor Lawrence was not accurate enough to beat that really tight, really intense man coverage. He needed to make NFL-level throws in order to beat LSU, and he wasn't able to. I mean, that's, that's harsh. He's only a sophomore in college, but that is the reality. What we saw last night is that Trevor Lawrence is not quite ready for the NFL style of game where He's got to be precise where, and look, there were people hitting Trevor Lawrence. I'm not saying Trevor Lawrence had perfect conditions, but that's what the NFL looks like. Trevor Lawrence, we, we got a glimpse of what Trevor Lawrence would look like if he played in the NFL right now, and it wouldn't be great. Trevor Lawrence had people in his face. He was getting hit as he threw, and he had receivers open by about six inches to one step, and he wasn't able to complete passes. That's not what you need to do in college, but it's what he needed to do to win that game. And if Trevor Lawrence is going to go to the next level in the NFL, he's going to have to be able to complete throws with people bearing down, hitting him as he throws, and throw into really tight windows where guys are only open by a step rather than by five yards. So we saw Trevor Lawrence, unfortunately, is not quite ready for the NFL. Now, again, he's only a sophomore. I'm being, I'm being very harsh, but I'm, I'm harsh on Trevor Lawrence because he's that good. I mean, Trevor Lawrence lost his very first college football game of his entire career against LSU in the national championship. I think it's okay if I'm a little, have higher expectations for Trevor Lawrence than other quarterbacks throughout college football. A lot of people say that Trevor Lawrence might be the next Andrew Luck. He's the best quarterback prospect in years. And you can say that about Trevor Lawrence if you want, but last night was the first time I've watched and gone, ah, there's, he's not quite where everyone talks about him being. When he's really forced to make those high-level throws into tight windows, he wasn't able to do that against LSU. Again, that's incredibly harsh, but that's also what you got to do. If you're going to evaluate Trevor Lawrence as potentially the best quarterback prospect since Andrew Luck, you got to be harsh. And if you're being harsh and you're being honest, he had people open by NFL standards and wasn't able to make those throws. It was a cool, wild game. Uh, I want to just share a couple of things that I thought were really funny. You know, the Clemson Tigers played against the LSU Tigers. Both the mascots were the same. And ironically, weirdly enough, Clemson calls their stadium Death Valley. 
so does LSU. LSU calls their stadium Death Valley. The people in South Carolina call their stadium also Death Valley. It's just kind of weird. And, you know, my favorite story today, I love Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow, LSU's quarterback, is awesome. But my true favorite story of the day was that I am, I'm just so happy for LSU's head coach, Ed Orgeron. I really am. Uh, a couple of years ago, Ed Orgeron was the interim head coach at University of Southern California, USC. And USC decided not to keep him around. USC decided, you know what, Ed, you're, you did great for us, but we're not going to hire you as a head coach. We're going to move on and hire someone else. I believe they hired, look, I, I cannot remember. It's a long time ago. I think they hired Ed Orgeron. I wish I looked it up. I didn't. Um, but right now for Ed Orgeron, this was a moment of redemption and vindication. Look where USC is today and look where Ed Orgeron is. The coach they didn't hire just won the national championship at another college, hoisting that trophy, celebrating the Heisman Trophy with Joe Burrow. That's so cool to me. And my dad's a gigantic USC fan. He was livid when they didn't hire Ed Orgeron. And to me, it's like, ha ha, good for Ed Orgeron. He got one over on USC. Uh, suck on that, USC. I, I love, to me, I'm like, yes, go Ed Orgeron. That's so cool. Uh, I do have two final thoughts You know, after this game. Number one is that Joe Burrow's preparation, the quarterback for LSU, his preparation and his focus reminds me so much of Tom Brady. I had to watch Tom Brady live earlier in December. And when you watch Tom Brady live on the sideline, he never watches the game. He, he literally, like, well, he's never standing watching his defense. All Tom Brady does is play quarterback, then go to the sideline, and he's got his head down like on an iPad, just constantly glued to his iPad. All he's doing is having his eyes focused studying the game, trying to prepare for the next opportunity. Then he gets up and he throws the ball and warms up. Joe Burrow is the same way. Joe Burrow has an answer for everything. He's incredibly well prepared. And every time you see Joe Burrow on the sideline, he's not thinking around. He's not watching the defense. He doesn't care what the defense does. He hopes they get a stop. Joe Burrow's on the chalkboard, preparing, making adjustments, getting ready for the next drive. That level of focus and preparation by Joe Burrow reminds me a lot of Tom Brady. It's kind of uncanny. And that's why Joe Burrow is such a good quarterback. Joe Burrow is not the most physically gifted quarterback. He can run a little bit. He's got incredible accuracy, but his arm strength isn't huge. It's the preparation, the things that Joe Burrow can control, that he has taken into his hands and made himself the best in college football at. Accuracy, footwork, decision-making, ability to extend plays, speed, things like things you can control. Joe Burrow has controlled and really refined to a T. That's why Joe Burrow is such an incredible quarterback. It cannot be overstated. He's one of the best quarterbacks I've ever seen play the position. He had one of the best years in the history of college football. I also want to say this. This is the second takeaway from the college football national championship. Tyran Matthew is at the game. Tyran Matthew is a cornerback for, well, a defensive back safety for the Kansas City Chiefs. And, um, you know, he was at the national championship on Monday night. Later during the week on Sunday night, Tyron Matthew will play in the AFC Championship game against the Tennessee Titans. And some people were saying that, you know, how could Tyron Matthew be there? That's wrong. That's awful. How could he do that? He should be preparing for his game coming up on Sunday. I mean, look, I, here's my perspective. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Tyron Matthew. He went to LSU. He's, a, he's, a, he's his alma mater. He knows the people there. Tyron Matthew might never, ever get the opportunity to watch his former college football team win a national championship again. 
when that opportunity arises, you go. I don't care. Uh, it's not like he was out the night before a game. He doesn't play till next Sunday. It was a day off. It was Victory Monday. Guy, I, I just re- I want to defend Taran Matthew here. He did nothing wrong. And in an opportunity like that, when you have an opportunity to do something that you might not ever get the opportunity to do again, you pull the trigger, you take advantage, you make it happen. And so that's exactly what Taran Matthew did. I have no problem with him on the sideline of the national championship game six days before he's about to play in the AFC championship game, a short flight away from his, the state he plays football in. Uh, I also got to say this, man. Look, I am sad for Clemson fans. I am. Uh, I like their head coach, Dabo Sweeney. He seems like a good man. Uh, he rubs some people the wrong way. I think Dabo Sweeney is one of the most passionate people in college football. He loves his team. He loves his players. His players love him. I think their, their program is going to be just fine moving forward. They had an incredible year. They went 14-1. and one. They just lost to you know the best team in college football history. So, you know, statistically at least. So that, I have no problem with Clemson. I think it's awesome. I like their run. Uh, the way they beat Ohio State was really, really cool. And uh, in the end, man, I'm so happy for LSU. It was just a, a fun game. The band was fun to watch. I had good pizza. I got to hang out with my dad. Watching the college football national championship there was a special game, a special moment. And uh, I'm happy that Joe Burrow got the victory. I really am. Like, I love Joe Burrow. And watching him and Ed Orgeron hold that trophy and celebrate together, Kind of made my night. And so for me, I just had a blast with the national championship. It was such a good time and a really, really enjoyable game to watch as a fan. It's funny, man. Um, immediately after the national championship, my brain just went straight to USC, University of Southern California. Uh, they had Ed Orgeron. They had an opportunity to keep him as their head coach. And uh, he wanted the job. <laughs> And they passed him up. USC said, nah, Ed, Ed Orgeron, we're good. We don't want you. Look where he is now. Look where Ed Orgeron is now. Ed Orgeron just won the college football national championship with LSU. And USC is, man, they are a, they're a mess, honestly. They're doing awful in recruiting rankings right now. And they kept their head coach, Clay Helton, in place in Los Angeles. Uh, you got to add, if you're a high school football player out there, and you're getting ready to choose a college football program to go to, you have to ask yourself, how badly does your administration, the people that hire your head coach, how bad does the administration behind the scenes, how badly do they want to win football? It's not always obvious. Sometimes you can't tell. In those situations, go ahead. But in a situation where with USC right now, it's pretty obvious they're not trying to win football games. They're happy being mediocre. USC football has settled. They're good enough. They're happy being mediocre. They kept their coach. Instead of spending more money, they could have, I believe they should have made a move, gone after a guy like Urban Meyer, a legendary college football coach. Go get a big name who can dominate recruiting and turn around USC football. And they didn't want to do that. The rumors are right now that USC's administration is worried and attempting to save money. This whole year is about saving money. One of the biggest boosters for USC got mad recently, stormed off and said a bunch of bad stuff about USC. And it's like USC doesn't seem to understand the financial benefit of having a winning program in college football. Look at Alabama. Look at Ohio State. Look at LSU right now. They are raking in a ton of money because they understand, hey, winning in college football brings in money for the school. USC has decided they're going to sacrifice next year and uh, they're going to save money next year. And in the process of doing that, they're going to hurt their reputation with recruiting 
I think for a while. I mean, it's going to, by the time they eventually get rid of Clay Helton and move on to a new head coach, it's going to take three years to turn around USC. You understand that, right? But here's the best part. If you're, I feel bad for USC fans right now. Um, guess who USC plays in their season opener in 2020? They play Alabama. They play Nick Saban and the Alabama Crimson Tide. And guess where they're playing the game at? On Saturday, September 5th, they go to Arlington, Texas. They go to Jerry World, AT&T Stadium, where the Dallas Cowboys play. And they're going to play at a, quote, neutral site. <laughs> I say, quote, neutral site, because it's not really a neutral site. But they're going to play in Texas against Alabama and the Crimson Tide. I want to make a prediction right now. This game is going to have, this crowd is going to have all Alabama fans. There's not going to be, man, you're telling me people and fans of USC are going to travel to Texas to watch USC play football. (laughs) A, their program sucks. The passion isn't there right now. You're going to leave LA for Texas? I just, I don't see it happening. I really believe that Dallas Cowboys Stadium on September 5th is going to be loaded. A sea of red, all Alabama Crimson Tide fans. Maybe there's like five people that with USC jerseys, like Reggie Bush jerseys from the 80s that happen to live in Texas now. But man, USC's going to get embarrassed on September 5th by Alabama. And it's going to be basically a home game for that program for Alabama. USC's football program's in trouble. Nobody's really... I haven't heard a lot of topics about this. It is a big deal. Like USC, recruiting is down. They kept their head coach. They're going to get crushed on September 5th. The reputation of USC football is at an all-time low, and it's only going to keep getting worse. Um, USC football's a mess right now. It's going to take a while to turn around. And the fact that, that the symbolism of it right now is that you see... I see Ed Orgeron on Monday night holding the national championship trophy. And I remember the moment when USC refused to even hire him. How harebrained and dumb does USC football look today? Their program's a mess. It's going to take a long time to turn them around. There's another little tidbit of news. There's another, there's another little tidbit of news that comes after LSU won the national championship. It's that LSU assistant coach and passing game coordinator Joe Brady is leaving LSU. He accepted a job as the offensive coordinator of the Carolina Panthers. And I'm telling you, if you're a Panthers fan, just be patient with the program. Be patient with the football team. I really believe that the Carolina Panthers are building something. You know, you have head coach Matt Rule. I love him. I'm a big fan. And now you have Joe Brady as the offensive coordinator in Charlotte, North Carolina. You have good ownership. I really like David Tepper, the owner of the Carolina Panthers. I am so excited to watch things develop in Carolina with the Panthers. They hired Joe Brady really quickly. What that tells me is that they said, hey, Joe, literally within 24 hours of winning a national championship, Joe Brady was already off to the next opportunity with the Carolina Panthers. Matt Rule got on the phone with Joe Brady said, dude, we want to hire you. What's your number? We love you. We love working with you. We'll pay you whatever you want. Come work for us. Not only does that say the ownership is supporting Matt Rule, they're going to go get him whoever he wants. But Matt Rule is an attractive coach to people throughout the world of football. Joe Brady, within 24 hours, said, I'm hopping ship. I'm going to go be the guy in Carolina with Matt Rule. He believes in Matt Rule and the Carolina Panthers. I do, too. Um, It's awesome, man. I think the Panthers are doing all of the right things. They're hiring good, smart, talented people. And, uh, And let's be honest, Joe Brady has nothing to lose. If Joe Brady goes to the Carolina Panthers and 
You ever heard of the Peter Principle where people might get hired above their pay grade and fail? Maybe Joe Brady fails with the Carolina Panthers. I don't think he will. I really believe in him. But even if he does fail, he can just go right back down to college football, do what he just did with LSU and dominate. Joe Brady has nothing to lose, but I really believe in Joe Brady. I think he's going to be a phenomenal match with the Carolina Panthers. I have no idea who their quarterback is going to be. I have no idea what's coming for the Carolina Panthers. Give it time. It might take two or three years before we really see the benefit and the fruits of all the labor that the Panthers are doing right now. But I believe in the Panthers' plan long-term, and I like the coaches they are hiring in Carolina. Now, we also have to acknowledge the Panthers did suffer a a pretty big setback uh, yesterday. The leader of, I guess it was earlier today, the leader of uh, their defense, longtime All-Pro linebacker Luke Keekley has decided to retire. He's only 28 years old. He'll be 29 in April. He's a seven-time Pro Bowler. He's a five-time All-Pro linebacker. 28 years old, and he decided he's going to retire. And it was a bit odd because Luke Keekley did a video like talking about what happened. And um, he, look, he said he loves the game of football, but this was the right time for him. And hey, man, I get it. When you're done, you're done. Um, if you're not all in and you don't believe in what you're doing, especially in the NFL where it's football is a game, but you got to be all in in football. If you're not all in on what you're doing, it doesn't work. And Luke Keekley, it was really interesting. He said physically he felt like he couldn't maintain his standard of play, which is like, it tells me his body must be breaking down more than we realize. Um, but I, I hope we see Luke Keekley work in the game of football at some point to some capacity, whether it's as a coach or as a scout. Luke Keekley, it's very clear in that video where he talks about the game of football and he announces retirement. It's so clear that football is his passion. He loves the game of football. It's his favorite thing in the world. And he was really torn up and really not, not too excited about retiring. So um, I hope that eventually we get to see Luke Keekley on a sideline somewhere or doing some, whether it's as a scout or as a coach. He should work with the game of football. It's clearly his passion. Um, and I also want to say I don't think he said this directly, but I. He could say it and not mean it, but I do. I don't really don't believe that Luke Keekley's retiring because of the coaching change in Carolina. He even said, "I like Matt Rule. I'm rooting for him." And he could just be saying that, but I, I don't get the sense that he was just saying that. It was clearly a very emotional, difficult thing for Luke Keekley, and I believe a personal decision that had nothing to do with Matt Rule becoming the new head coach of the Carolina Panthers. It's disappointing. It's sad. You know, it's a weird day for the Carolina Panthers because on one hand. They got a brand new offensive coordinator, a guy who is one of the masterminds <laughs> in the world of football right now, Joe Brady. But they also got the sad news that their defense is taking a hit with Luke Keekley, their longtime linebacker, their longtime, the heart of their defense for years. Luke Keekley is now retiring. So weird day for the Carolina Panthers. Some positive, some negative. Um, and I'm excited. I can't say this enough, though. No matter what happens with the Carolina Panthers, I am so excited for their future. I think they have great ownership, a great head coach. Now they have Joe Brady. They're a program and a, a franchise headed in the right direction. I'm all in. I really believe in them. I believe in Matt Rule. Um, and I think the Panthers have a bright future. You got to give them patience, let them get there. But in the long run, the Carolina Panthers have a really bright, bright future. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we're going to talk about the Vikings and the 49ers. We'll talk about Kevin Stefanski, the new head coach of the Cleveland Browns. We'll talk about a cool story where 
how I think Bill Belichick really went out of his way to help the San Francisco 49ers. We'll finish the show by talking about the Ravens and the Titans, the Texans and the Chiefs, the untold story of that game. Should Bill O'Brien be fired? We'll talk about that. I have a... The name of the show is Strong Opinion Sports. I got a strong opinion about Bill O'Brien. We'll talk about the Broncos' new offensive coordinator, and we'll end the show by talking about the most boring game of the weekend. All of that is ahead. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand. Strong Opinion Sports is not just on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, But just in case people don't realize, the show is on Spotify. It is on iTunes. It is on SoundCloud. It is on Google Play. And if you out there want to just listen to the show, uh, you can. I I think I've done a poor job marketing and explaining to people. This is not just a video podcast on YouTube. If you want to listen to the show and don't want to watch it, you can listen to the show on any kind of audio feed you want. If you want to listen to it while you drive to your car and your car to work, uh, while you're at work, whatever you want, um, you can listen to an audio-only version of the show. I get a lot of messages from people saying, "Is Zach, is the show on Spotify? Is the show on SoundCloud? Is it on Google Play? Yes, it's on all those services. If you want to just listen to the show, it is a regular podcast. It's not just a video podcast. I film it. I put it on YouTube. I think I had some cool foresight with that. But it is also just an audio-only podcast. If you want only the audio version of the show, you can find that. I want to shift gears to the San Francisco 49ers and the Vikings uh, from Saturday. On Saturday, the San Francisco 49ers beat the Minnesota Vikings 27-10. to And uh, the biggest storyline to me in this game was the fact that the 49ers defensive line dominated one-on-one matchups against the Vikings offensive line. The 49ers defensive line took over this game and it didn't really matter what the Vikings were trying to run. They couldn't find success no matter what they were doing. Uh, the Vikings' offensive line was struggling. You know, the Vikings ran the ball only 10 times for a total of 21 yards. Yeah, the Vikings only had 21 yards rushing in this entire game. And there are two reasons for this. Number one is that at one point, the Vikings were down just a ton of points, and they had to throw the ball every single down to try to get back into the game. But the other reality is that the 49ers' defensive line simply shut down the Vikings' running game. And it's a shame. I mean, Vikings quarterback Kirk Cousins was sacked six times. Uh, It was ridiculous. He really didn't have a chance. The Vikings couldn't do anything on offense. And it's weird to me that a lot of people want to put the blame. We'll talk about this later on in the show, too. A lot of people want to put all the blame for this loss on Kevin Stefanski, the the Vikings offensive coordinator. It's not coaching's fault. Coaching, no matter if you you can come up with a great scheme. But if your guys just get physically dominated in one-on-one matchups, it doesn't matter what plays you call. That's what happened for the, the Vikings. They might have called great plays. They might not have. It didn't matter because they just got dominated physically. And it's rare to see that in an NFL game where one team physically dominates the other. That's exactly what happened with the 49ers defensive line against the Vikings offense. So I felt bad for Vikings fans. I got to acknowledge that Jimmy Garoppolo, the 49ers quarterback, was phenomenal. He was great. I mean, he kept making big throws on downs like third and six. Third and eight, third and 12. Jimmy Garoppolo was phenomenal on really important key downs. And there was a point where the Vikings crumbled in third quarter. Uh, Kirk Cousins, the Vikings quarterback, threw an interception that led to a 49ers touchdown, put the 49ers up 24 to 10. 
Then minutes later, the Vikings actually muffed a punt. They, they fumbled a punt. They dropped it. That gave the 49ers set up a first and goal for them. They took the lead 27-10. to They didn't look back. That's the score they won by. And so I just want to say here that the reason why, the reason for this game being as lopsided as it was, was the 49ers defense just dominated. And particularly the 49ers defensive line, they just physically were, they outmatched the Vikings offensive line. The 49ers defensive line took over this game. This is why they won 27 to 10. I do also have to say, everybody is giving a lot of love to the Chiefs tight end, Travis Kelsey. The Chiefs tight end, Travis Kelsey, people are saying he's the best tight end in the NFL. And he is phenomenal. Travis Kelsey is a phenomenal receiving tight end. But if you ask me, the 49ers tight end, George Kittle, is in fact the best tight end in the NFL. He's not only a great receiving tight end. If you if you want people look at stats and numbers far too often. People are like they get so caught up in fantasy football and they go, "Well, Travis Kelsey has better fantasy football numbers than George Kittle." Dude, shut up. No offense, stats are not everything. And if you look at the stat line from th- this weekend, George Kittle didn't have as good of a receiving stat line as Travis Kelsey. Fair enough. Now, by the way, you want to say to Travis, if you want, if you want proof that Travis, that George Kittle, the 49ers tight end, is a great receiving tight end, go watch the Saints 49ers game. At the end of that game, George Kittle had a gigantic play that literally put the team on his back and carried the 49ers to victory. But it's not just the things he does that show up on statistics and show up in box scores and yada yada. George Kittle, the 49ers tight end, does something that does not show up in stat books. And nobody around the league, and especially, no offense, but dumb fans that follow fantasy football, they don't understand the game as well. George Kittle does something they can't appreciate, which is blocking. George Kittle is a tremendous, tremendous blocker in the running game. You're not going to see that in touchdowns receiving. You're not going to see that in catches. There's no stats that I can think of other than pancakes, and that's for offensive linemen for blocking for George Kittle. But George Kittle is a gigantic reason why the 49ers run the ball so well. George Kittle, play after play after play, gives tremendous effort, tremendous technique, and executes blocks phenomenally. Nobody seems to appreciate it. He's got a multi-dimensional game as the tight end. Yeah, George Kittle is a great receiver. He also blocks. Travis Kelsey is a receiving tight end. And George Kittle is light years ahead of him because he's not only a great receiving tight end, George Kittle also is tremendous with blocking in the running game. And that's a big part of why the 49ers win week in and week out. Their running game is so good because of George Kittle's blocking. Nobody talks about that. Nobody appreciates that. But George Kittle is the best tight end in the entire NFL. Travis Kelsey is a close second. But blocking is what sets Travis, what sets George Kittle, excuse me. Blocking is what sets George Kittle over the edge. Great receiver. Also incredible blocker. That is why George Kittle is the best tight end in the NFL. All right, this one's going to be really, really fun. I'm excited. Um, <clears throat> the Browns have hired Kevin Stefanski to be their new head coach. If you don't know, Kevin Stefanski was formerly just, he, his most recent job was with the Minnesota Vikings as the Vikings offensive coordinator. And uh, some people are you know, immediately criticized the Cleveland Browns for hiring Kevin Stefanski 
Because in, with Kevin Stefanski's last game as a Minnesota Vikings offensive coordinator, the team only put up 10 points against the 49ers defense. And <laughs> I think that I get why Cleveland Browns fans are really skeptical. I get it. They're very disappointed. It's been a long, if you're a Browns fan, you've had a long, brutal history as a Browns fan. Um, but you got to understand that the Vikings loss to the 49ers, and in fact, even, I know he's a coordinator, but the Vikings' lack of points against the 49ers' defense was not actually Kevin Stefanski's fault. Sometimes you can make great play calls, and your team just gets physically dominated. That's exactly what happened. The 49ers' defensive line took over that game. They kept winning one-on-one matchups. They kept destroying the Vikings' offensive line. Uh, There's nothing you can do. You can't call better plays. If your guys just keep getting beat, Physically in one-on-one battles, it doesn't matter what plays you call. Kevin Stefanski is not the reason why the Vikings offense struggled against the San Francisco 49ers defense. It's because the 49ers defense is phenomenal. They're incredibly gifted. They destroyed the Vikings up front, and that's not Kevin Stefanski's fault. That's not the fault of scheme. That's not the fault of this or that. That's sometimes you just can't coach that. It's, hey, our guys are better than your guys. I don't know. I, I think some guys don't understand. That was just scheme. That wasn't scheme. That was guys just getting beat. I wanted to defend Kevin Stefanski. He did a really good job all year for the Minnesota Vikings. Kevin Stefanski is a really good offensive coordinator. He does a great job creating good matchups for his players. He puts his players in a really good position to be successful. Uh, I don't know whether or not Stefanski is going to succeed with the Cleveland Browns, but that's more because I don't trust the Cleveland Browns organization. It has nothing to do with Kevin Stefanski. Now, you got I don't know. I don't care who you are. I'm not a Browns fan. I really like the Browns because they're just like the little engine that could. You, it's this guy that you just want the Browns to succeed. Like, for the love of God, please. They've been so bad for so many years. I just want to see Cleveland turn things around. But I don't care who you are. You have to acknowledge <laughs> Kevin Stefanski is a massive upgrade over the former Browns head coach, Freddie Kitchens. No offense to Freddie Kitchens. The guy had no idea what he was doing. He couldn't even call an offense, let alone run a football team. At the very least, Kevin Stefanski understands what he's doing with the keys to the car running an offense. He's going to call plays that are designed to help Baker Mayfield to set up our Odell Beckham Jr., Jarvis Landry, David Njoku. He's going to use the weapons that the Cleveland Browns have to benefit their team and maybe help them get wins. Already, Kevin Stefanski is a gigantic upgrade over Freddie Kitchens, the former head coach. Now, it's really hard to know whether or not Kevin Stefanski will ultimately be successful as the Cleveland Browns head coach. He's never been a head coach before, and this is me being honest. I have no idea. I hope he's successful. I I really don't know. But I got to say, I hope it works. I really, really... I'm not from Ohio. I don't really care about the Cleveland Browns. I just know that, man, they've been so bad for so many. My entire lifetime, they've had like one good season ever. I would love to see the Cleveland Browns have a resurgence. Maybe have a winning record. Maybe have some success for the poor people of Cleveland. I just feel bad for them. And even more than all of that, I really, really, really hate missed opportunities. Nothing drives me crazier and and more angry than when I see something that could be great and the potential isn't met. 
And that's exactly what Cleveland is. They have so many offensive weapons. They have a really young, talented quarterback. They have talented receivers. They have talent all over the place on the roster. If they can't figure out how to win, it's just one of the world's biggest disappointments and the world's biggest missed opportunities. If the ownership can't get out of the way and if the Browns cannot find a way to win. I, I'm, I'm not a Browns fan. I, don't, I shouldn't really care, but I do because I want to see them do it. And it's my, my like level of OCD where I just hate when people miss opportunities. And the Browns, if they can't find a way to win in Cleveland, it's one of the biggest missed opportunities in sports in a long, long time. Now, I watched Kevin Stefanski's introductory press conference with the Cleveland Browns. Um, I got to say, number one is that the Browns owner, Jimmy Haslam, I, I don't know how to say that. I, I, I really want to be, I don't want to be super harsh. I want to be respectful. Um, it was weird that he had, there was a moment where he's introducing Kevin Stefanski, the new head coach of the Cleveland Browns. And it's like he, he literally mentions that he doesn't even know the names of everybody in his family. He had to like look at his notes. And I get it. That's honest. I don't want to be too harsh here. Like as a broadcaster myself, if there's a name I don't know, I just go to the notes and say, look, I'll be honest. I don't know what I'm saying, so I'm going to read it. But it was weird because the contrast between Jimmy Haslam hiring Kevin Stefanski and David Tepper hiring Matt Rule to be the Carolina Panthers head coach. You know, David Tepper's the Panthers owner. When David Tepper talked about, you know, Matt Rule, the new Panthers head coach, it's clear they knew each other really well. They talked about each other like they were already family. And David Tepper talked about his, you know, Matt Rule's family with such fondness. And he liked the, the kids and the wife and this and that. And the weird disconnect with Jimmy Haslam and Kevin Stefanski's family was just, it was a weird start to the press conference. I know I'm nitpicking to a massive degree, but the contrast in other owners talking about their new head coach and Jimmy Haslam, the Browns owner, talking about his new head coach, there was just a level of weird uncomfortableness where it's like, do you know the name names of everybody in his family? Do you know the, the family of the guy you hired? It was weird and uncomfortable. I've talked about that part way too long. I got to say, I absolutely loved everything Kevin Stefanski had to say in his introductory press conference. In fact, I think actually what I liked more than that was I loved everything that he didn't say. He didn't overpromise. Um, he didn't make bold statements. Kevin Stefanski was very, it was cool. He wasn't trying to sell himself. He wasn't trying to win the press conference. He was just like, here I am. I am myself. I'm going to get through this. It was pretty clear. Kevin Stefanski doesn't care what the media thinks of him. Like to, to some degree where I think Kevin Stefanski, I don't know how to put that properly. I think what I mean to say is that I think Kevin Stefanski wants to prove his worth as a head coach on the field rather than in a press conference. Uh, he knows that uh, I, my entire lifetime, Coaches have come and gone from Cleveland, and they've had this introductory press conference countless times in Cleveland's past, and coaches come in, and they're, they're all rah-rah, they say this, and that. we're going to do this lofty goal, and this lofty goal, we're going to change things, we're going to turn things around, and Kevin Savansky didn't do that. He was very measured, he was very even keel, um, he wouldn't even commit to whether or not he's going to call plays this fall, like I really liked it, because he wasn't, again, trying to sell himself, he wasn't trying to win the press conference and he was trying to keep expectations tempered, and I, I like that. It's rare to see that, especially from a new head coach. Stefanski said almost nothing, and that's kind of a skill to, to be able to talk for 30 minutes and say basically nothing in 30 minutes. It's exactly what you want from a head coach. You know, we saw Bill O'Brien, the head coach of the Houston Texans the other day, totally put his foot in his mouth. It's like giving away far too much information in a press conference. Like, Why would you admit that? I think Kevin Stefanski is going to be genius in press conferences because he can talk for 30 minutes and say absolutely nothing. 
Now, he did seem just eager to work. Um, I like the way he talked about Baker Mayfield. He's, he sees a lot of potential. Uh, I got to say, man, if I am, as an offensive coach, if I was a, an offensive coach taking over the helm of the Cleveland Browns, I'd be really excited to get to work with the talented roster they have, to work with Baker Mayfield, to work with Odell Beckham Jr., Jarvis Landry, Nick Chubb, David Njoku. I mean, there is so much talent just waiting to be used properly in Cleveland. It'd be awesome, man. I really, I really like it. Um, and I love the way that Kevin Stefanski answered questions. He didn't allow the media to corner him. He was very composed. Um, we, we really have no idea what he's going to do. But I, I just, it really rubbed me the right way. It meant a lot to me that uh, Kevin Stefanski didn't overpromise. He didn't say, I'm going to do this and this and this. He just was like, I'm going to come in. We have good people here in the building. People matter. And I'm going to make changes and we're going to do good. I, I just, that's all he said and it was enough. Now, I am skeptical because it's the Cleveland Browns. I have no idea whether or not Kevin Stefanski can do it. He's never done the job before. But I am hopeful for the Cleveland Browns because they got a ton of talent. They have a ton of talent in that building. And if they can't find a way with an offensive coach to at the very least score a lot of points in Cleveland, there is just massive problems with the Cleveland Browns. And maybe they're so bad they can't even find a way to score points with elite receivers, elite running back, probably an elite quarterback, an elite tight end. If they can't find a way to score points with with Kevin Stefanski as a head coach, everything's wrong in Cleveland, and I, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, now, I will add one final kind of odd thing. Um, the Browns didn't hire Josh McDaniels, who is the New England Patriots offensive coordinator. And the reason that was reported was because Josh McDaniels apparently wanted to make sweeping changes throughout the the Browns organization, especially the front office. And it's concerning that the Browns ownership and especially Jimmy Haslam didn't want to make changes. They said that the reason why they didn't hire Josh McDaniels was because of the changes that Jimmy Haslam that he wanted to make. And so um, it's interesting to me, Jimmy Haslam, the owner of the Cleveland Browns, has a bunch of people in his ear. Paul DePodesta, other names I can't remember right now. Um, But he has a bunch of guys in his ear giving him feedback constantly about the football team. And Josh McDaniels, if he was hired by the Browns, Josh McDaniels wanted those guys out. He said, I don't want you to have a side jury giving you constant alternate information. I want to have a one-to-one relationship with you. And, uh, Obviously, the people that Josh McDaniels wanted to fire didn't like that. But ultimately, Jimmy Haslam decided not to do that. And uh, I want to be very honest about that. How have those people, the, the people that Josh McDaniels wanted to get rid of, the people in the ownership's ear, in the front office, kind of working as consultants, doing who knows what the heck they're doing, how much have they really helped the Cleveland Browns in recent years. Because if you look back at recent years, the Browns have been awful for a long, long time. And I don't understand why the Browns have this intense loyalty to the front office guys they already have there. It hasn't worked. They haven't succeeded in a long, long time in years. I mean, the Browns are the only team in the last decade to not have a winning season in the last 10 years between 2010 and 2020, they haven't had a winning season yet. That's unbelievable. That's ridiculous. It's so weird to me. The franchise is in an awful state, and yet still, to, for some reason, the Browns have no desire to change their front office and no desire to take a different approach with ownership. Um, look, I think Kevin Zavansky might be the right guy. I have no reason not to believe in him. He seems like a safe hire. seems like he's good enough. But will the Browns 
lack of willingness to make changes in the front office, will that come back to haunt them later? I have no idea, but it's a storyline worth following and worth mentioning. Maybe the Browns' desire to not make changes in the front office, maybe that'll come back to haunt them and hurt them later down the road. Okay, um, I'm drink some coffee first because I've been talking for a long time in a row. Um, notice my mug. It says, with a great beard comes great responsibility. I love it. My dad got it for me. Pretty cool. Uh, the San Francisco 49ers are having an incredible season. And uh, I cannot help but think back to the moment when all of this began. All the fortunes began to change and the tides began to turn for the 49ers franchise. I came up during the commentary of the Vikings 49ers playoff game that there was a pretty open and pretty obvious plan for the 49ers to bring in Kirk Cousins to be their quarterback once he was done with the Washington Redskins. You know, the Washington Redskins and Kirk Cousins' time was coming to an end, and Kyle Shanahan and Kirk had worked together with the Redskins when Kyle Shanahan worked for the Washington Redskins and Jay Gruden. And um, that whole plan, the plan to bring in Kirk to the Bay Area, all of that changed when the Patriots traded their backup quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, to the 49ers. Therefore, Kirk went to the Vikings instead of the 49ers. And in the end, I think the 49ers ended up with a better option at quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. Now, Jimmy Garoppolo and Kirk Cousins are very similar quarterbacks. Uh, I think the biggest difference for me is how comfortable Jimmy Garoppolo is in big, high-pressure moments. That's what makes him better to me. Jimmy Garoppolo just on third down, late in games, has like, he's just ice in his veins. He's just got complete steel. He doesn't even care. He's totally fine. Kirk seems to shrink in big moments. Jimmy Garoppolo seems to elevate. That's a big difference between Kirk Cousins, Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, But it was really interesting. The Patriots, and more specifically Bill Belichick, traded Jimmy Garoppolo for just a second-round pick to the 49ers. Bill Belichick gave Jimmy Garoppolo to the 49ers for a bargain. Kind of bizarre, kind of interesting. And to me, looking back, it feels like a moment of tenderness, a moment of softness from Bill Belichick, the Patriots head coach, and the guy who runs their player personnel and acts as kind of the general manager. Uh, Bill Belichick could have drove up the price for Jimmy Garoppolo and tried to get a first-round pick and tried to make a team spend a lot of money and spend a lot of equity to go get Jimmy Garoppolo. You know, for example... Bill Belichick could have traded Jimmy Garoppolo to Cleveland for a number or for a first overall pick and said, the price is steep. If you 49ers want to have Jimmy Garoppolo, you got to pay a fortune to get him. And looking back, it feels like Bill Belichick did Jimmy Garoppolo a solid. He did him a gigantic favor. You know, Bill really respects the game of football. And, uh, you know, he sent Jimmy Garoppolo a really good franchise quarterback to a really good opportunity, a good situation, a good franchise good general manager, John Lynch, and a good head coach, Kyle Shanahan. It seems like he gave the 49ers a big deal, a bargain. Why did Bill Belichick do this? It's very interesting to me. And what's even cooler is that later down the road, the 49ers actually found a way to repay the favor. Later, A little bit after the Jimmy Garoppolo trade, the 49ers traded offensive tackle Trent Brown to the Patriots for cheap. And that helped the Patriots shore up some of their problems on the offensive line. It solved some issues with blocking. And that actually catapulted the Patriots and allowed them and helped them 
win the Super Bowl later that year against the LA Rams. To me, it's so interesting and fascinating. Um, it's fun to remember a moment in history where Bill Belichick gave the 49ers a really good franchise quarterback for next to nothing, a second round pick. That's a bargain. And it's cool to think about the moment where Bill Belichick, at least this is the way I like to think about it. I like to think about it this way, that Bill Belichick did an honorable thing. You know, he took care of Jimmy Garoppolo and said, hey, Jimmy, I'm not going to screw you over. I hold your rights, but I'm not going to send you to Detroit or Cleveland or Cincinnati. I'm going to send you to a good franchise where you have an opportunity to be successful. I'm going to send you across the country to the San Francisco 49ers. You're going to have, you're going to have a good head coach, a good general manager, good ownership. And uh, he did the 49ers a solid. And in the end, the 49ers actually returned the favor by sending Trent Brown to the Patriots. I just love that, man. It's fun to think about the, the cool moment that changed the fortunes of the 49ers forever. And every time, you know, there was a, a rumor at the time when the Patriots were trying to decide whether they should commit to Jimmy Garoppolo or Tom Brady. And this is how the story goes. The story goes that Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, wanted to stay with older quarterback Tom Brady. And Bill Belichick really wanted to switch gears and commit to the young quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't know if this plays a part in it it at all. But I do know that if that's true, if Bill Belichick believed in Jimmy Garoppolo, meanwhile the Patriots' ownership, Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, didn't want to move off of Tom Brady. If Jimmy Garoppolo, in fact, goes on and wins the Super Bowl this year with the San Francisco 49ers, it makes Bill Belichick look even more right. Hey, the guy who just won the Super Bowl could have been on our roster. Interesting thinking. Maybe there's more. Maybe Bill Belichick wasn't just being a nice guy. Maybe he knew, hey, I wanted Jimmy Garoppolo, and every time he wins, he makes me look like I was even more right, and we should have committed more to Jimmy Garoppolo. The Patriots are out of the playoffs. The 49ers are still in. And if Tom Brady's out, they don't win. And Jimmy Garoppolo does win. And that's the guy Belichick wanted. Even if it's never public knowledge until maybe he retires, who knows. But Bill Belichick will always know. He picked the right guy. And he'll always be able to look at Robert Kraft and say, should have picked Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't know, man. That's stuff I love to think about. The, the nerdy story behind the story. Um, it just is cool to me that the moment where Bill Belichick took care of Jimmy Garoppolo, sent him to a good franchise, and gave him a good opportunity to be successful. All right. Um, whew, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the... Here's what we'll do. We'll talk about the Tennessee Titans, then we'll take another break, and then we'll get into the Chiefs and Texans, the craziest game of the weekend. Oh, my gosh. Uh, what a fun game that was. On Saturday, the Tennessee Titans... Shocked a lot of people. They were the sixth overall seed in the NFL playoffs. Overall, not six overall seed. That's not how that works. But they were the sixth seed in the NFL playoffs. And they beat the Ravens in Baltimore 28-12. to Now, we need to clarify some things because there is a lot of nonsense being said about this game. There are two big narratives that are not true. And I want to set the record straight and explain what really happened. So first, I want to talk about this. Number one. This narrative is absolutely not true. People keep telling me after this game happened and the the days following, people keep sending me messages saying, told you, Lamar Jackson sucks. Lamar Jackson can't throw the ball, blah, 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 blah. And either those people are idiots, and maybe people are idiots and don't understand how playing quarterback works. 
But more likely, people just look at the numbers. They're fantasy football fans. They just focus on the statistics and the box score rather than actually watching the game. So let's talk about the numbers. Lamar Jackson was 31 for 59 passing. He had 365 yards passing, one touchdown, two interceptions. He also ran 20 times for 143 yards. And uh, Lamar had two interceptions. And one of them was his fault. In the second half of the game, Lamar Jackson threw an interception. He was throwing an out route to the left. And he threw it about six inches too far inside. He left it inside just a little bit. It would have been behind the receiver a tad bit. And uh, that allowed the defender to step in front of it, make a play, and have an interception. That interception's on Lamar Jackson. He didn't miss the throw by much. He missed the throw by just a couple inches. But that miss matters. It allowed a defender to make a play. Now, his other interception was actually on the fault of the receiver. Fault of actually his tight end, Mark Andrews. Um, he threw to his tight end over the middle. It was a catchable pass early in the beginning of the game. It might have been a tad high, like six inches higher than it should have been, but it was very catchable. It bounced off of his hands, popped up in the air. It got intercepted. And uh, people just pile on to Lamar Jackson. It's like they don't pay any attention. That, that interception was not Lamar Jackson's fault. If you look at the numbers, you see two interceptions, but the truth is it should have just been one. That one, the, second one, the first one wasn't his fault. And then people also forget to look at, oh, how about the fact that the Ravens had six dropped passes against the Titans? Awful. Lamar Jackson's receivers let him down over and over and over again in key moments. And he threw some dimes. There was a perfect out route early in the game against really tight man coverage. Lamar Jackson was perfectly on point. It's a highly accurate throw. And then there was a long ball to Hollywood Brown down the middle of the field right before halftime perfectly in stride. Like, I'm not saying Lamar Jackson is a perfect thrower of the football. There were some moments where he threw some ducks, and I went, uh, Lamar, what's going on? I don't understand. Like, there are moments from Lamar Jackson, I went, you're not throwing a very tight spiral right now. I don't understand. But to say he can't throw the ball and he's a terrible quarterback throwing, it's just wrong. It's wrong. It's stupid. It's, it's just dumb. I mean, people who say that are just completely wrong. Now, uh, the quarterback in me, I, I love quarterbacks. I'm a quarterback analyst, and I watched Lamar Jackson on Saturday and thought, man, this dude is running around a lot behind the line of scrimmage. I went, the way Lamar Jackson is extending plays and running around a bunch, it makes me uncomfortable. And my first instinct was to think, come on, Lamar, get rid of the ball. Stop holding on to us. Stop running around so much. But then you got to think about this perspective. If you're a Ravens coach, if you're, a Ra- if you're Lamar Jackson's quarterback coach, and Lamar Jackson is running around a ton behind the line of scrimmage, you actually don't want to speak up. You don't want to limit his ability to run around behind the line of scrimmage. You can't tell Lamar Jackson, of all people, not to run around and not to extend plays. The minute you try to put handcuffs on Lamar, the minute you try to limit Lamar Jackson's ability to be himself, you really hurt him. Lamar Jackson is an artist. You got to back up. You got to get out of the way. You got to let the guy do what he does best. And what he does best is create yards running the football. Now, here's the real crime by the Baltimore Ravens. The real thing they did wrong is that the Ravens receivers gave up in key downs. I mean, Lamar Jackson's running around behind the line of scrimmage trying to keep a play alive. The Ravens receivers downfield stopped running around, stopped trying to get open. They gave up on the play. Lamar Jackson's job, it's called a scramble drill. In a scramble drill, Things break down, the quarterback runs around, 
and the receivers downfield have to keep moving into open grass and open space to try to keep a play alive. I watched multiple times where Lamar Jackson would scramble and extend a play, and the Ravens receivers downfield had their feet stopped and were just watching Lamar Jackson run around rather than continuing to run, continuing to run to green grass and getting open to give Lamar Jackson a spot to throw the football to. A lot of the times where Lamar Jackson got in trouble behind the line of scrimmage, it wasn't actually his fault. It was on the receivers who weren't running around, running to green grass, trying to get open. They let the play die. They give up on the play and just began to be really observers of the play, waiting to see Lamar Jackson do something crazy, rather than trying to get open and help him have a spot to throw the ball downfield. Some of those plays were actually on his receivers for not running around enough. Now, another false narrative about this game is that Titans running back Derrick Henry did all the work on offense for the Tennessee Titans. Again, people need to stop looking at just the stats and stop looking at just the numbers. If you look on paper, you'll see, wow, Derrick Henry ran the ball 30 times for 195 yards rushing. Unbelievable. And then you look at the Titans quarterback, Ryan Tannehill, and you say, well, he was only 7 for 14 passing. He had 8 88 yards, that's basically nothing. So he had seven completions for 88 yards. But then you realize, okay, if you just look at the numbers, yeah, Ryan Tannehill is not that impressive. But if you watch the game and you look at Ryan Tannehill in key moments, you realize basically every time Ryan Tannehill did anything, it had a gigantic impact on the Titans' chances to win the game. He made so many little small unappreciated key plays. First of all, he had two touchdown passes. I don't know how you say he had three touchdowns on the day. I don't know how you tell a guy who has three touchdowns they're useless and don't have an impact on the game. That's just wrong and stupid. But Ryan Tannehill was phenomenal on third down. Early in the game on third and two, Ryan Tannehill ran for a first down that kept the drive alive and it ultimately led to a Titans touchdown. Also, that touchdown came on third and goal. Third down, third down. Ryan Tannehill, phenomenal. He also had a 45-yard touchdown pass against the Ravens' man coverage. The Ravens' defense said, hey, we're going to take away the run. Ryan Tannehill, we are daring you to beat our man coverage. We're going to say, hey, Ryan Tannehill, you can't beat us. And then he did. Then Ryan Tannehill did beat them. When the Titans were driving, it was a key third and six. He made a great decision, made a great throw that throw led to a first down and then later on that same drive on third and goal the Tennessee Titans ran a speed option where Ryan Tannehill had the option to pitch the ball to Derrick Henry he faked the pitch he kept it himself burrowed in got a touchdown for the Tennessee Titans that was Ryan Tannehill's third touchdown on the day Um, Derrick Henry gets all the love but nobody talks about how many key plays Ryan Tannehill makes He had seven completions. He didn't run the ball that much. But every time he did run, every time he did throw, it was on third down. It was in a key moment for the Titans. He made key play after key play. He is the real story. The real story behind the Ravens losing to the Tennessee Titans is not that, yes, Derrick Henry, the running back of the Titans, had a ton of yards. He was the workhorse. He was phenomenal. But on third downs, in key situations, Ryan Tannehill, the Titans quarterback, made really good throws, and ran the ball really well. Executed, and that led to first downs for the Titans, keeping drives alive and scoring touchdowns. 
Lamar Jackson doesn't suck. He can throw the ball really well. People are just dumb. They don't watch the game. And Ryan Tannehill is not nobody. Ryan Tannehill made a ton of key plays on Saturday that allowed the Titans to beat the Ravens. I do have one other thing. We, I haven't talked enough about Derrick Henry. There's this one thing. I, I, I was talking to my dad about Derrick Henry, and I would say that Derrick Henry is kind of like the Russell Wilson of running back. So what does that mean? Derrick Henry is so good at turning a bad situation into a positive gain. You know, Russell Wilson, the Seahawks quarterback, will take a three-yard loss, run around, extend a play, throw the ball downfield, and make it a 15-yard gain. What would have been a sack for most quarterbacks becomes a gigantic gain for Russell Wilson. Derrick Henry is the exact same way where he'll get met in the backfield. And instead of getting tackled and losing two yards, he'll break a tackle, run through a guy, keep the play going, and actually run for eight yards. He'll he'll turn a two-yard loss into an eight-yard run by breaking tackles, lowering his shoulder, doing what he does best. I am so excited to watch Derrick Henry on Sunday against the Kansas City Chiefs. I have no idea how the Chiefs are going to try to stop him. I would, I would load the box. I'd say, Ryan Tannehill, you're going to have to beat us today. But is that even possible? Because even if you do that, even if you load the box, and on paper you have everybody you need to stop Derrick Henry, he can still run over guys. He can still run through tackles and turn a negative loss into a positive gain. And so I'm so excited to watch Derrick Henry on Sunday. He's the best running back in the NFL right now. And it's not just the way he does this or that. It's the way that he turns a negative play into positive gains. Guys, my name is Zach Schalmer. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we will talk about the Kansas City Chiefs. We will discuss whether or not Bill O'Brien should be fired. We'll talk about the Broncos' new offensive coordinator. And we'll end the show by talking about the most boring game of last weekend in all the world of football. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Um, I want to talk about the Chiefs and the Texans. On Sunday, the Chiefs beat the Texans. Uh, it was a really wild game, and there are a lot of misconceptions about this game. And people are missing out on the real story with what happened and how the Chiefs beat the Houston Texans. I want to start with a fact. At one point, the Texans led the game 24-0. to Correct. Absolutely. And in the end of the game, the Texans actually lost 51-31, to which means that at one point, the Texans led in the game 20, by 24 points, and they ended up losing the game by a total of 20 points. That's insane. It's kind of weird. But I want to tell you the story of this game. First, you need to understand the way that the Texans get out to a 24-0 lead. How did they do that in the first place? There's more than meets the eye here. Uh, You can't just look at, well, the Texans had a big lead and they blew it. It's how it happened. There's a story here that nobody seems to understand. I want to start with this. The Texans got the ball first, and they scored on their opening drive. It was a third and one, and uh, the Texans ran a screen, screen and go, which means you fake a screen pass, then throw the ball downfield. It's a double move. It's kind of like a, it's basically a trick play in the world of football where what it did is it, it caused a busted coverage, gave the Texans a really easy touchdown. The guy was wide open and gave the Texans the lead 7-0. Then the Chiefs got the ball, literally seconds later. And then on a third and six, a Chiefs receiver dropped a wide open pass that would have been a first down. 
So the Chiefs decided to punt. And when the Chiefs punted, the Texans blocked it. They blocked the punt. They picked it up. They ran for a touchdown. So bam, four minutes and 54 seconds into the game, immediately, very beginning of the game, the Texans were leading 14-0. to Each team has only had the ball one time, and yet the Texans are leading 14-0. to And you know, the Chiefs down 14-0. I would not feel upset. I'd feel really pissed. It'd be, emotionally, I'd feel like uh, we're losing because the other team got two really lucky touchdowns in a row. They got a trick play for a touchdown, and now they got a blocked punt. They're not earning this. So then the Chiefs got the ball again. It's another third down. It's third and five. And Robinson this time passed, dropped a pass that would have been a first down for the Kansas City Chiefs. Next, it's the Texans' ball again. They get stopped by the Chiefs' defense. It's third and 11. Watson was confused by the coverage and ended up getting sacked. And the Texans decided to punt. And when the Texans punted, the Chiefs actually fumbled the punt and gave the Texans the ball first and goal at the six-yard line. That led to another Texans touchdown. So the Texans at this point lead 21-0. to So at this point in the game, are the Texans winning or are the Chiefs just beating themselves? It's not like the Texans have put together three really long, impressive scoring drives. Let's recap how this happened. The Chiefs have two really key drops on third down that would have been first downs. The Chiefs also had a busted coverage where they gave up a touchdown on third and one, a really easy touchdown. They had a punt where that got blocked that led to a touchdown. And the Chiefs fumbled a punt, which gave the Texans the ball on the six-yard line, which led to another Chiefs touchdown, another Texans touchdown. Easy score after easy score after easy score. The Chiefs were giving away this game. Yeah, the Texans led 21-0, to but it's not like they really earned it the way you would normally think. It's not like, again, it's not like they had long drives and you know they're leading because it's grueling and really a punch in the gut. No, they were getting, I would even say, kind of lucky. The Chiefs were giving them the lead rather than the Texans dominating this game. So later on a fourth and one for the Houston Texans. For some reason, I have no idea, I don't understand. Uh, the Texans looked disorganized. They didn't know what they're doing. Uh, they, they actually had to burn a timeout to try to understand what was going on and kick a field goal instead of going for it on fourth and one. The field goal gave the Texans a 24-0 lead. But after the game, Bill O'Brien, the Texans head coach, said, yeah, the reason why I kicked the field goal here was actually because I didn't have a play I liked in that situation, which is such a horrible answer. You can't ever admit that. It's Bill O'Brien saying he wasn't prepared for that situation, which is stupid because that's your job as a head coach to prepare for that situation. But immediately after that field goal, the Chiefs returned the, the kickoff 57 yards down to the 42-yard line. And two plays later, the Chiefs scored a touchdown. Bam, suddenly it's 24-7. to So very quickly, oh, the Chiefs have a little bit of life. And on the next possession, this is where it gets really, really dumb. So already the Chiefs screwed up a fourth and one. Excuse me, the Texans screwed up a fourth and one. Now it's fourth and four for the Texans. They're on their own 31-yard line, backed way up in their own territory. They run a fake punt on fourth and four from their own 31-yard line, and they get stopped. This gives the Kansas City Chiefs incredible field position on their own 34 on the 34-yard line going in. The Chiefs quickly score another touchdown. Now the game, now the score is 14 to 24. And then on the kickoff, <laughs> the Texans fumble the kickoff, which gives the Chiefs another first and goal. The Chiefs go down, they score. They make it 24-21, to 21, and in the span of 3 minutes and 29 seconds, 
the Chiefs scored three touchdowns and made it a field goal possession game. In the span of three minutes and 29 seconds, the score went from 24-0 to to 24-21. to Just like that. That incredible lead the Texans had that they really didn't earn evaporated in three minutes and 29 seconds. And in fact, by halftime, the Kansas City Chiefs were leading 24-28. to The Chiefs had the lead 28-24. So right, all of this was to prove that the Texans' 24-0 lead is a little bit overstated. People keep saying the Texans blew this incredible, horrible 24-0 lead, but <laughs> it's not even true. It's not like the Houston Texans actually earned that lead. The reality is the Chiefs were playing awful to start the game, handing points, handing field position, handing this and that to the Texans, and the reality is the Texans didn't earn that 24-0 lead. And after that 24-0 lead, the Texans went on a streak. They had seven touchdown possessions and touchdown drives in a row. Seven touchdown drives in a row before the finally the Houston Texans were able to score and make it a game where it was then, what is it, 48 to 31. And the final score was 51 to 31. The reality behind this game is that the Texans never really had any momentum or any chance. It was a facade. That 24 to 0 lead was a facade where the Chiefs were handing them opportunities, a blocked punt a busted coverage, a a punt they dropped which gave the Texans the ball on the six-yard line. That lead that the Houston Texans built that 24-0 lead wasn't actually earned. And the reality is that the Kansas City Chiefs were in control of this game the entire time. People want to be furious and say, the Texans burned a 24-0 lead, and on paper that's technically correct. But the reality is that the Texans were never really in control of that game. And the Kansas City Chiefs, were shooting themselves in the foot. And when push comes to shove, the Chiefs were a much, much better football team. The only reason the Texans ever led in this game was because the Chiefs were allowing them to do so. All right, uh, all year, all year Texans fans have been saying that they want their head coach, Bill O'Brien, fired. And for the first time, I've pushed back on this for a long time, but for the first time, I'm finally listening to you people out there. I am listening to you guys. I want to be careful here careful here because I don't think Bill O'Brien is an awful head coach. Bill O'Brien has won a lot of games. He's been to the playoffs multiple times. Um, and, you know, winning games doesn't happen by accident in the NFL. For example, the Cleveland Browns, people always say that the Houston Texans have a ton of talent on their roster. And fair enough. But if talent won games alone in the NFL, the Cleveland Browns would have won a ton of games last year. The Cleveland Browns had a ton of talent on their roster, and they didn't win because they had the wrong head coach, Freddie Kitchens. So if you hate Bill O'Brien, fair enough. But he's got he's got some competence as a head coach because even though he might not be achieving, he might be underachieving a little bit, he still wins games. He still won the division. He still took his team to the playoffs. So Bill O'Brien is not an awful coach. However... I got to acknowledge this. I believe that Bill O'Brien has reached his ceiling as an NFL head coach. It's unfortunate. I was talking to a coach yesterday, and uh, this is what really got me when he said this. He said, are we going to look back at Deshaun Watson's career and think, could more have been done to help Deshaun Watson? Man, it hit me like a, I don't even know, like a punch in the gut. The Texans quarterback, Deshaun Watson, is one of the best young quarterbacks in the entire NFL. He's phenomenal. I love him. He's really good at his job. 
I mean, he's everything you want in a quarterback. There was even a moment in this the Texans-Chiefs playoff game where, you know, the pressure's on, and the Texans were down 10 points, and he's getting pushed around. And I actually saw Deshaun Watson was smiling gigantically ear to ear. He loves competition. He loves fighting. He loves battling. He's, a, he's just a, he's like a dream quarterback. I would love to have Deshaun Watson be my franchise quarterback. And you know what I hate? Like, one of the things I hate more than anything in the entire world, I absolutely hate missed opportunities. And it feels to me like if, in fact, the Houston Texans don't win a Super Bowl with Deshaun Watson, that's a missed opportunity because he's a special quarterback who can do special things. And it feels like Bill O'Brien, the head coach of the Houston Texans, might not be that guy who can win a Super Bowl in Houston. It feels like the Texans have reached a ceiling. They've gone as far as they can possibly go with Bill O'Brien. Why did the Houston Texans lose to the Kansas City Chiefs? They were outmatched the entire game. I know they had a 24-0 lead. I did a whole video on a topic about how that lead was really false. But the Texans coaching staff made boneheaded decisions down the stretch, especially on special teams. A fourth and one where they didn't look prepared. And there was a moment where they ran a fake field goal on their own 31-yard line. What are you doing? What are you doing? I watched that live and I was like, what is happening? The Houston Texans, what the heck are you? This is a horrible, horrible decision. And the Texans looked ill-prepared. There was a fourth and one uh where they left the offense on the field at first. They were clearly about to go for it. And then there was some confusion, and the Texans Texans ended up calling a timeout. And after the game, Bill O'Brien, the Texans head coach, admitted publicly, he said, I didn't have a play I liked in that situation. Dude, that's your job. No offense, I don't really care. You're the head coach. Your job is to be prepared to have a play you like ready on a fourth and one situation in their tor- territory to run on fourth and one. He didn't have one ready. He wasn't prepared. And that's that's like a death penalty for head coach. You can't ever admit that. It might be true, but please don't ever say that publicly to the media that you are prepared to do your job in a moment you were needed. I don't know, man. The bad decisions by Bill O'Brien just keep adding up more and more. And I really am starting to believe that I've defended Bill O'Brien. I mean, Bill O'Brien's won games. He's not miserable, but he, I believe, is what's holding back the Houston Texans from getting farther down the road in the playoffs. He's not an awful coach. He's won games. He's in the playoffs. He won their division, but he frequently hurts his own team. Honestly, I think it might be good for the Houston Texans if they fired Bill O'Brien. And I think getting fired might be good for Bill O'Brien. It might force him to regroup. I mean, He's got to do some self-analysis and self-analyze, look inward, and um, improve in the long run as a coach because he makes far too many little errors in in-game decision-making. It's awful. It's like he's not prepared. There's all these little holes in Bill O'Brien's, you know, there's mo- coaching moments from Bill O'Brien where you go, the heck, man? How, how? How? How do you have this job? How is this really what's happening from a professional NFL head coach? I don't understand it, man. Um, it's also, you got to also acknowledge this. Currently, the Houston Texans do not have a general manager. A general manager is the guy who picks the players for your franchise. Bill O'Brien assumes the role of general manager, but there isn't one currently in Houston. That's another problem. So it appears that not only is Bill O'Brien the, the problem with coaching holding back the Houston Texans, 
it seems like he might not even be helping the team by being a bad general manager. So I think the Texans are going to keep him. It's after the season is over. They didn't fire Bill O'Brien when they had the opportunity to right after the year ended. And he got to the playoffs. And it's rare for a coach to get fired after the playoffs, after a, a, a playoff run, where they, they even won a playoff game. But sadly, I'm sold. I'm, I'm finally listening to Texans fans. I think it's time to move on from Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien wins, and that's great. But winning is not everything. I think he's reached a ceiling and reached a moment where I don't think Bill O'Brien is a good enough coach to lead the Texans to a Super Bowl. And once you figure that out, you got to cut bait. When you're dating a girl and you want to get married and you realize this girl is not the girl I'm going to marry, you got to end it because there's no future there. You've gone as far as you can go, and now you see the end and you realize we're not where we need to be. That's where the Houston Texans are. They're with Bill O'Brien, and it's come to at least my attention that Bill O'Brien's not the guy to lead them to a Super Bowl. And so at that point, what are you doing? Why are you wasting more time and more energy with a coach that isn't good enough to take you to the place you want to get to? I think Bill O'Brien is holding back the Houston Texans. He's reached his ceiling. And if the Texans ever want to win a Super Bowl with their incredible quarterback, Deshaun Watson, they're going to have to move on, sadly, from Bill O'Brien. A competent coach who can win games, but he's not going to be able to take the Texans to a Super Bowl anytime soon. All right, uh, the Denver Broncos fired their offensive coordinator, Rich Scangarello, and immediately replaced him with former Giants head coach Pat Shermer as the new offensive coordinator. So number one, I really believe that this move was less about Scangarello and far more about Pat Shermer. Uh, Pat Shermer was an awful, awful head coach in the NFL. You got to acknowledge that. But he is a genius offensive coordinator. Head coach and offensive coordinator are two very different positions that require very different skill sets. Pat Shermer lacked the leadership and organization and respect demanding respect required to be a head coach in the NFL. But he is such a good offensive coordinator. He does a great job putting guys in a position to be successful. I mean, Pat Shermer won games, got to an NFC Championship game with Case Keenum at quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. And uh, I think what happened here was that the Broncos realized they had a shot to hire Pat Shermer, so they didn't hesitate. They fired the guy they had and went all out to get Pat Shermer. I respect it. It makes sense to me. The Broncos now have one of the better offensive coordinators in the entire NFL. I think it's a great move. I love it. He knows how to get the most out of his players. I think Pat Shermer is a great hire for the Denver Broncos. But I do want to say, Broncos fans completely misunderstand the former offensive coordinator, Rich Gangarello. Number one, the way that Rich Gangarello hired and handled Brandon Allen was so impressive to me. Nobody seems to understand how... Winning a football game with Brandon Allen was one of the more impressive things I saw all year in the NFL. Brandon Allen was an extremely limited decision maker playing quarterback for the Denver Broncos. Brandon Allen threw to his first read every single time. The guy was not not a big time decision maker. And the fact that they won a game that way is such a testament to Rich Gangarello calling plays. It means that basically every single time he called a play, he called exactly the perfect right play where the first read was the right option for Brandon Allen. And Broncos fans were mad that Rich Gangarello, the former offensive coordinator, kept calling plays that wouldn't work, plays like a tight end sweep. But people don't understand that, people from the outside looking in at football don't understand that 
running plays that don't work every time is actually really important. Running plays like running back, you know, die runs right up the middle, or the tight end sweep with Noah Fant. Noah Fant is one of the most talented physically players on the Denver Broncos. You want to try to get him the ball in space. So that's one reason to run that play. But another reason is that you fake the sweep. Eventually, if you keep running a sweep with Noah Fant, the tight end, running tight end sweep over and over and over again, it doesn't work. Eventually, you run it, and you don't give it to Noah Fant. You run play action, and you drop back the quarterback, and maybe you throw to Noah Fant down the field, or you throw to someone else down the field. It's a wrinkle that sets up other plays. It's important to run plays that might not work over and over again because eventually you run another wrinkle where they go to stop what they've been stopping for a long time and you do something slightly different and it causes a gigantic, gigantic gain for the offense. Rich Scangarello was one of the most underappreciated play callers in the entire NFL. He did a great job with the rookie quarterback, Drew Locke. Um, Scangarello was fired, yes. But he was fired because the Broncos didn't want to miss out on getting Pat Shermer. It was, it was less because Scangarello was bad and far more because Pat Shermer is just that good as an NFL offensive coordinator. All right, um, on Sunday night, the Packers beat the Seahawks. This game was really disappointing to me for so many reasons. Number one, I wanted snow. I'm watching Lambeau Field, the Packers, the Seahawks. I wanted to see snow, and we didn't get that. That sucked for me. And then number two, I wanted a close game, and we didn't get that either. It was probably fun for Packers fans. I'm happy for them. Um, but for most of the game, the Packers led by 18 points. You know, they led 21 to 3 for a while. Then they led 28 to 10. And uh, in the end of the game, yes, the Seahawks closed the gap. The final score was 28 to 23. Congratulations. Uh, but there was no fun back and forth. I mean, the Packers always had the lead in this game. And the Seahawks had to battle back just to even make it kind of close near the end. 28-3 to is the final score, but it was not a close game. It was never interesting. It was never fun. There was no back and forth. Um, this was honestly the least interesting game of the entire weekend for me. And I will say, Packers receiver Devontae Adams played phenomenal. He had eight catches for 160 yards, two touchdowns. Um, but that was really the, the bright spot, the exciting part for the Packers. The other thing the Packers did really well was get after the quarterback. Their investment in due defensive ends, the, the, Smith, the, the, the Smiths, Preston Smith and Zadarius Smith paid huge dividends on uh, Sunday night. It was so sad watching Russell Wilson, the Seahawks quarterback, just run around for his life. I mean, the dude was sacked five times. He was not sacked countless other times because he was avoiding the rush. I mean, he was the leading rusher for the Seattle Seahawks. He had seven rushes for 64 yards, which is just ridiculous. He was the leading rusher for the Seattle Seahawks, which is terrible. And uh, the Seahawks had multiple drop passes. Look, I, I thought we saw some progress from DK Metcalf. DK Metcalf, the young rookie receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, has made tremendous, tremendous strides and gotten far better throughout the course of the year. But uh, what's sad to me is when I look ahead to the future of the Seattle Seahawks, this year Russell Wilson was carrying their franchise because they had a limited offensive line that wasn't good enough. And when I look ahead to the future of the Seattle Seahawks, I don't see that changing anytime soon. The Seattle Seahawks need to start investing in their offensive line. Spend a first-round draft pick getting offensive linemen. Do that for like three years in a row. It feels to me like the Seattle Seahawks are wasting the best years of Russell Wilson's career, and it's so frustrating. It's so hard to watch. Every year, I watch Russell Wilson run around for his life with a bad offensive line and players around him that aren't good enough. And that's so frustrating because Russell Wilson's one of the most talented quarterbacks in the entire NFL. And at the very least, you could please, if you're a Seahawks 
general manager, please just bring in better offensive linemen. If, if nothing else, I don't care what you do, but give Russell Wilson a better offensive line because you're doing him a disservice and wasting the best years of his career. It was a boring game. There was no snow. It wasn't close. Uh, I'm happy for the Packers head coach, Matt LaFleur. I, I like watching him succeed. Uh, a lot of people thought he wouldn't succeed. He's a first-year head coach. Really cool for him. But overall, the Seahawks and the Packers was an incredibly boring incredibly uninteresting playoff game. I'm a guy who had, I didn't care who won. I just wanted close and we didn't get a close game. It wasn't fun. There was no back and forth. And I watched the guy, Russell Wilson, a quarterback I like run for his life and get the crap beat out of him. All in all, the, the Packers game, Packers Seahawks, Sunday night football was not fun to watch at all. And uh, just, a, just a disappointing game from a fan perspective and from a, uh, comp- from a Russell Wilson fan perspective. Okay, uh, here's how I want to end the show. If you're struggling, please go get help. Uh, nearly four years ago, uh, my younger brother took his life, February 8, 2016, and I learned two really painful lessons from that. Number one is that if you're struggling, go get help. Uh, my brother never told anybody he was having a hard time. He suffered in silence. He never shared his struggles with anybody. And so the Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. The Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. If you're having a hard time, please go get help. You don't even... You don't have to call the suicide hotline. Talk to your friends. Talk to people that matter in your life. Go get help. Don't suffer in silence. My brother never told anybody he was having a hard time. And one day I walked into his bedroom and I found him dead on the floor. And that's, I don't want that for anybody. I don't want you to die. I want you to survive out there. I want you to go get help. And, and here's the other part of this is that I didn't make it clear enough to my brother that I was there for him, that I, was, I loved him, that I cared for him, that he could reach out to me. Um, I talked to my brother every single day and we talked about video games and movies and sports and girls, but... We never had a conversation with a lot of depth. And so I encourage you, if you're out there, don't be afraid to have a conversation with a little bit more depth to talk about, you know, look to your friends and say, man, how are you doing? And tell the people in your life, you love them, you care about them. If they're having a hard time, they can always reach out to you uh, for help and for guidance for this or that. I mean, I, it's so important to make sure the people in your life know how much you care about them. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for tuning in. This has been Strong Opinion Sports. I love it. I love my job. I'm so grateful that you guys watch and listen. Thank you so very much. Have a great day. And uh, ba-dum-bum, bam, we are